Well, hello, church. It's good to see you this morning. We, we have a lot on our plate this morning, and some of them are the questions. Those of you that are visitors, first of all, welcome home. We're glad to have you here. Uh, we'd like for this to be your family and your faith community. One of the way, things we do here is we look at the deep things of God. We don't just skim across the top of Scripture and the like. We dig very deep. And we're in the fifth of a series right now, actually, that we will conclude next week and take a break for Palm uh, Sunday and Easter and then take up with some other subjects the other side. But there are buckets that you will see on the side here, and there are also a box or two out in the foyer that say questions that you can write questions on. Now, the questions, if they deal with the sermon, they're answered the next Sunday, Unless it's like with the teens, I skipped a week because I got these a bit late. Um, other than that, they're answered. The, if they're not, don't deal with the, the sermon. They're not thrown away. They're just held by me until they are, we, we are able to get to that subject during a sermon. All right? Here's a, a perfect example of that. There's a, a very good question about love trumping law. And then, yet, yeah, why did Jesus have to die and that's actually a Palm Sunday thingy, so it's going there. We're not answering that one yet. So, um, all right. Uh, what our recent teachings about women in, in leadership roles say about husband, wife, and gender roles in Ephesians 5? And the answer is it has quite a lot to say, actually. And we covered some of this in the young married class, the connection class that I've been doing or had done until I've moved on now. Um, but the rest of you didn't hear that, and I'm aware of that. So at the other end of Easter, we're going to be taking a look at gender roles and, and marriage and all that other. However, got to give you a fair warning, that may not hit. Uh, we may not start with that until June because we've got some other things we need to work on first. But those are coming, all right? That question will be answered. Uh, then a real quick one. First Timothy and Ephesians had the same city in mind. No? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and Corinth had a lot of the same issues. It says, since youth and young people, boys and girls, have uh, good views and ideas about things, can we be allowed to teach in a church and serve in leadership? Yes. This is your church. I know that sometimes, here's the problem. Adults want you to act like children when they want you to act like children, and then they want you to act like adults when they want you to act like adults but they never let you know when, <laughs> right? And so, you know, just obey me. Well, why can't you think for yourself? Well, which one's it going to be? You know, one of those. Um, we consider you our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want to hear from you. We want to, yes, we want your songs. Um, and yes, that does mean male and female. So there you are. Uh, why do we view God as male gender? Is this influencing our, our view on women not being able to teach? Absolutely, it influences us. Why do we do that? Well, linguistics is a fantastic little interesting thing, but uh, it may be more complicated than you think. For example, most of the pronouns used and the, the verb forms used for the Holy Spirit are actually feminine. Hmm. Now, then should we start calling the Holy Spirit she? Probably not. Why? Because he is used as the neuter gender in our language. Uh, we, uh, we have a it and they and the like, but we, we use, it's a, it's a language deal. Does it have effect? Absolutely. 
most languages are very, very uh, sexist in that, let's say everybody in here was female, except for George. If I was in Spain, or in France, or in Italy, or in the majority of countries of the world, when I referred to this group, I'd have to refer to it in male terms. Because one male spoils everything. <laughs> Not you, George. Not you. No. The, uh, so anyway, it does influence us, but however, God uses a lot of expressions to show us a maternal side, does he not? Jesus says, I wish that I was that mother hen. Uh, we're told to, to, to lie upon the, uh, the breast of God for sucker on his breast. That's actually a line in some old songs. When I was a kid, I would try, I, I can't sing, that seems naughty. You know, I, I, it just embarrassed me a bit. But that whole maternal outreach thing, that's absolutely a part of the language, but we miss it because that's not part of English. So, why are the descriptions for elders and shepherds only male? Actually, uh, they might not be, uh, but we're going to talk about that later. Uh, we're going to get to that. One of the hints you get is whenever it speaks in specifically of deacons, it says, and the women also, and translators often put that, and their wives. No, it's referring to the women deacons, like Phoebe and the like. Um, how do we, I'll just give you a little clue. Uh, inscriptions, we learn a lot about things from inscriptions on graves and on synagogue sides and the like. We, we have many inscriptions and even paintings of women in, for synagogues and for early churches that refer to and praise the woman as elder or bishop, presbytera, over this congregation. And that's in the first 200 years before Constantine got a hold of it. Uh, why did Jesus decide to select or call, only select or call 12 men? He called an inner circle because he lived in a world where men were the ones who could travel and men were the ones who could speak in public. He chose men. Uh, the, the bluntest way to put this is he chose men because he wasn't an idiot. That's, those, those are the ones that he could use at that time. However, did he only choose men? No, as we've read in Scripture, women not only followed him and served the workers, they also, with their money, and their, they were patrons. They supported the work. And, so, and in fact, who did Jesus choose? Interesting question, that. Who did God choose to bring God into the world? A woman. Uh, all right, fair enough. Uh, who was the first one to announce that this must be the son of God, a woman, Elizabeth, well then, because baby left in her womb and the like, well then they go to church. Who was the first one? Anna, a prophetess. Huh. Now, um, when Jesus is raised from the dead, who's the first one to take the news? God gives the news of the resurrected Lord to a woman. So let's not think he only chose men. That's it. All right. Uh, now the invitation song. No, no, we've got, um, we've got some work here. Uh, if you've ever, ever been in the North Seas, you, you've, you, or perhaps even just watched some Jacques Cousteau back in the day, always loved his gig, because his job was to sit on the boat and throw his son into the octopus. You know, as, it was always, I will be having tea while Jean-Marc Philippe will be wrestling the sea demons, you know, that sort of thing. And it was always, I thought he had the greatest job in the world. Anyway, 
uh, you might have seen some specials back in the day, and they'll say, there's an iceberg. And you're aware, you don't see an iceberg and go, oh, let's go up to it and look at it, because the majority of it's under the water. To anywhere between 75 and 90% of it's underwater. So while you're going to look at it, you do the whole Titanic thingy, except without the singing and the, the crashing and the, uh, oh, I wish you could get up on this massive board, but no, you'll have to drown. Did anybody else actually figure out the square footage of the board that woman was on and let her... Anyway, um, <laughs> thinking, all right, that's just a selfish woman. Is that what... Anyway, uh, the, uh, move, moving on, don't distract me. Um, when, when you come across something in Scripture that stands out, we've been referring to this as a river of faith, and every now and then there's a rock, and we put, we put lighthouse on it last week to say, there's a rock, pay attention to the rock. But we also need to talk about, all right, why is there a rock here? Scott McKnight, by the way, uh, and a very, very nice writer who has a great deal of love for the churches of Christ, uh, wrote a book a few years ago called The Blue Parakeet. He refers to them not as rocks, but as blue parakeets. In other words, you're looking out your lawn, you're seeing some robins, some blackbirds, and then there's a blue parakeet. Pay attention. Something that's unusual. In the Bible, when you hit something like this, you start saying, all right, what is, what is this here for? It's time to take a look at the facts behind the, the rocks. What's underneath the surface? Because too many people have used these passages and used them to trump everything else in Scripture, make women feel like second-class Christians, and then as if they were still bearing the guilt of Eve, which the Scripture says you're not, and then trying to act like you need to be ashamed for all of this. But then we see God treating women with such respect and treating them as judges and prophets and deacons and apostles and teachers. And yes, I said apostles. We're going to talk about Junia next week. These, then what's going on? All right. If you read the New Testament, it's very obvious that most of the New Testament was written to people who were already in churches and those churches were in crisis. We're reading the, the letters from the firemen of God trying to put out the fires in the new churches. They were under siege by false teachers, secular authorities, pagan cultures, and a, and a, a culture that was adamantly opposed to the culture of life and love that Jesus brought. 20% of the words in Paul's letters directly address the crises. Yeah, word counts. Used to be much more impressive before anybody could do that with a, a button. But yeah, word count. In fact, the word counts when it comes to Timothy and Titus are well above that. Why? Because Timothy was in Ephesus and Titus was in Crete. And those churches were under assault by more than just the culture and more than just the Jewish people that wanted them to return to Jewish religion. Remember, most Christians were Jews. This is a different group. No, they were also fighting goddess worship and something called Gnosticism. We'll talk about that. The goddess religions and Gnosticisms were enemy of the church from day one. They were, wherever they were strong, the church was under attack continually. Take a look, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths, this is so important, 
endless genealogies, and things, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these things and have turned to demeaningless talk. They want to be teachers. This is so important. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Gnosticism is the root of what we later began to call the New Age. And sorry, teens, we're dealing you out of this hand because there was a, um, a lady that was a, a very well-known actress named Shirley MacLaine, and now she showed up on Downton Abbey a little bit, but other than that, she hasn't been around for a while. Well, she, she found a guru back in the 80s and found out she was God. Um, and that everybody else was God too, but we had just forgotten we were God. Which begs the question, how good a God are you if you, c you can forget you were one? <laughs> but this was a huge movement, and a, a serious thing, you know, uh, out on a limb, you know, that sort of thing. And she was uh, one of the movies, they made a movie about it, and there she finds her discovery. She's standing uh, the guru is chanting and helping her get ready for this. She's standing on the sands of the sea with her arms out, and she's going, I am God, I am God. And some of you remember this. Have you ever wondered what that looked like from God's perspective? There's this little thing, not much bigger than the grains of sand she's standing on in cosmic terms. And there's this little annoying voice. You know, he said, Michael, come here, you just, I. <laughs> the flood thing's out, right? Yeah, okay, we did the flood thing. Uh, we can't do the flood thing. Um, <laughs> myths were being taught as truth. Convoluted myths were being taught as truth. You want a headache? Study Gnosticism. It is the most complex, bizarre, self-contradictory thing on the planet period. It is beyond absurd. It, it categorizes angels into genealogies that go into thousands of genes, uh, of, of circles of angels, and all the rules, and he's saying, don't get involved in this. Ephesus was the center of this, and the center of goddess worship. An incomplete list of their female gods alone would be the great mother of gods, that was her name, the Mountain Mother, Bologna, Sabele, Demeter, and Diana. Oh, we've heard of her. But most in history don't call Diana Diana. They call her Artemis, which to us would sound like a guy's name, but it wasn't back then. This, all of these taught the same myth, and that was that there was a female deity, and that female deity created the universe, but only the good bits. And then she created a human the first human being. Now, the way she did this was about 15,000 different ways, and I'm not going there today. That perfect human being was a female, like her, and shared in that divinity. And then a lesser God came along, an evil God, a corrupt God, and that corrupt God made all the bad things on the planet, and man. All of these religions taught this. They went further, 
and they, they, they grabbed the story of Adam and Eve from the Jews, and they said, oh, this is our story, but it's corrupted because really Eve was created first, and it was Adam that, that you know, did all the wrong things, and Eve was actually wise and good to go after knowledge. Gnosticism means knowledge. To go after knowledge, and that evil God got in her way. He was saying the God of Scripture is the evil God. And that all the stories were twisted. In Acts chapter 19, and we're not going to read it, but you, you've read it before. You get a glimpse of what the believers in Ephesus went through. Whenever somebody would just try to preach, there'd be a riot. Because the goddess will not allow this. The city was full of books of magic and myths and fanciful tales. And do you remember that the church there did not grow until the members repented and burned those books? That's, they were everywhere. These people would take bits and pieces. In fact, if you read Gnostic literature and you know ancient literature, you're, you're able to go, that's Sumerian, that's Babylonian, that's Zoroastrian. All right, that one came from the Phoenicians, probably, at least the Sea Peoples. Uh, this one came from the Jews. All right, that, and they just ram them together in bizarre ways. When Paul tried to teach there, the riot broke out because he spoke against the Theotokos, the mother of God. That's what they called Diana. Now do you know why Christians often responded by saying Mary was the mother of God? And of course that got its own wings later on, but the mother of God, the Theotokos. Paul was driven from the city, but he kept in touch with the people there. He sent them warnings about the myths they were surrounded by, like this in Acts chapter 20, and starting at verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of, the, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. People, this isn't talking about somebody might not teach the right way to take communion. Somebody might do something improper in a church building. This was about the survival of the story of Jesus Christ. Not the 5,000 things we've found to divide over in the last 2,000 years. It was about the story of Christ. He wrote to the Corinthians that he had to stay on at Ephesus because of the many that opposed him there. Take a look here. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me. I like that, by, I like that attitude, by the way. It, it reminds me of Chesty Puller, the great American Marine leader, who when he was in Korea, all the other... The, the army, everybody else had backed out of there, had retreated, gotten out of there, except this one group of Marines. He was leading them. They radioed in. They said, give us a sit, a sit rep right now. And he said, uh, we're surrounded. We got them where we want them. <laughs> By the way, they called back in. They said, would you, would you? give us detail and he said the enemy is in front of us the enemy is behind us the enemy is to the left of us the enemy is to the right of us we got him by the way that's why my son uh, as well uh, every united states marine especially in boot camp every night they'll say 
Good night, Chesty, wherever you are. They remember that spirit. Paul says, I've got many that oppose me here, so I'm going to stay right here. This is where I need to be. These are not Judaizing teachers. These are the Gnostics, the goddess worshipers. Now, once you know that, you look at Timothy, and wow, everything pops out. You're able to say, well, that's why he said this. That's why he keeps talking about this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, for example, uh, verses 3 through 4, he talks about uh, the people were going to do, you know, as I urged when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. The certain people who he's talking about in the next chapter too, those women were teaching this. That's what he was talking about. Or to devote themselves to myths and, once again, endless genealogies. He says they just promote controversies, not God's work. In verse uh, 6 and 7, some have departed from the good stuff, these, he says, from, from the teachings that he's done. What, what are they doing now? Well, they're going from house to house. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. He's talking about Gnosticism. They were trying to use the Jewish law, but they got it wrong. Verse 8, we know the law is good if one uses it properly. They weren't using it properly. They had lost contact with Jesus. This is critical you get this. Verses 19 and 20. We can put that up. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the truth. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. People, if you say God punished women and brought all this evil upon us because he didn't want women who were the good, smart ones to get knowledge, the tree of knowledge, therefore an e he's an evil God, that's blasphemy. And to stand all the Bible stories on their head to make Jesus the bad one and his brother Lucifer the good one, and Gnostics do that, is blasphemy. That's what they were fighting. That's what they, he wasn't worried about. Wait, wait, I got a letter. Not recently. This was back when I was still up in Michigan. Uh, and the Heberts were there, and the Castleys were there, and the, uh, you know, Bill and Donna Wright were there. And so a lot of you uh, uh, were taking over. Uh, so there you are. But got a letter from a man saying, uh, I, uh, we are a visitor at your church on the last Sunday. And a woman handed us a bulletin. Yes, that was his issue. He went on. I, I couldn't help it. I just asked my secretary to write a letter for him. I said, if you could do like, if you could put little hearts over the eyes. That would rock. Paul isn't worried about a woman passing a communion tray. He doesn't know what a communion tray is. He's not worried about a woman leading songs. He's never heard the concept of leading songs. He's not worried about a woman reading scripture. He praised Timothy's mom and grandmother for doing that. And Phoebe read his scripture to Rome. He was talking about goddess worship and the Gnostics. 
that's a whole different thing. And so he uses this making shipwreck. He talks about they have loosed their, they've lost contact with their anchor. That making shipwreck, that's a real hard phrase for us to get. Here's what it meant. It's, it, it says they are boats that have slipped their mooring and are loose in the harbor, bashing other boats. They've lost their anchor, and now they're adrift, putting all the other boats at danger. That's what that word means. We don't have a word for that, so we make it shipwreck. What he's saying is they've lost touch with Jesus, and they're bashing into everybody else, causing them to lose their faith as well. Who were these Gnostics? Well, for the, for the longest time, all we had about them were books written against them because their books got destroyed. And so you could, you could have said, well, maybe they were smarter than these people think. Well, then in the 1940s, a whole library of their books was found. And, oh boy, you, you can read them. I've had people say the hidden lost gospel, the secret gospels. Are you kidding? They're online, free, enjoy but you won't. You're going to get about halfway through a couple of chapters and go, what in the world? Exactly. It is bizarre. It's, it's awful. In their book, Satan is the hero. Jesus is the evil brother of Satan. The creator God is a bad God, except for the creator God of the woman, and she's perfect. Then, uh, so what does Paul say? He says, when you run up against this, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Now hold on to that anchor. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called gnosis. Gnosticism, knowledge. Every time when I was read that as a boy, I was read that to be told, don't you listen to those science people. And then I became a science people. <laughs> no, it's not talking about science, even though some of the early versions, uh, versions said science falsely so-called. Science just means knowledge. Don't follow the Gnostics. Some have done it. They've departed from the faith. Don't follow what is falsely called knowledge. The Gnostics also denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because they believed there were two broad groups of Gnostics. One believed the body was inconsequential, so do whatever you want to with it. So eat, sleep, be merry, and have a great time, because it doesn't matter. The other group of Gnostics believed that your body was evil because it was a created thing, part of this world, therefore you should punish it constantly. Paul spoke against both groups, by the way. But both groups denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ because if your body is meaningless and a bad thing, why would you want it back? So right after 1 Corinthians 14, where he talks about those women, he spends all of chapter 15 saying there is a resurrection. Now you know why. He's talking to the Gnostics. He's not trying to do church polity in Franklin, Tennessee, 2014. He, did, he didn't think there'd be a 2014. He thought Jesus was coming right back any minute. Look busy. <laughs> he was talking about a current situation, knowing that 
knowing what was being taught by women in Ephesus and Corinth helps us make some sense about some strange rules about what these widows are supposed to be doing in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and his warning in 2 Timothy verses three, uh, chapter, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. These are the kind, speaking these women, and they, the men rather, who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. This particular group of Gnostics he's referring to here used women as sexual missionaries. Their, their pagan temples were full of sex. And they, because they believed as long as you had the knowledge, your body could not sin. And therefore, it was a real tempting thing for young men. And he's saying, don't let this loose among your widows. Don't let this loose among the women. And remember, in the book of Revelation, we're warned against the synagogue of Satan. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. Gnosticism. The New Age. Sexual libertinism. That sort of thing. To correct their upside-down teaching on Eve and Adam and the fall of mankind, what did he say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14? He says, no, Adam was created first, then Eve, then Eve took the fruit. She was, he's trying to retell the story, saying, just hit the reset button here. All right, young people that use Apple products don't know what that means because your computers work. Um, <laughs> at wind, when you use Windows systems, every so often it gives you a little vacation. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a little blue screen pops up, and you're doing nothing now. So you have to shut everything down, hit the reset button, walk around it three times, uh, sacrifice a chicken. I'm not really sure what the, the protocol is, but Paul is just hitting a reset button here, saying this is the way the story goes. He's not trying to keep women from speaking. Or he wouldn't have talked about how they speak and when they can speak and how to take turns with the men speaking in Corinthians. He's talking about a particular group of women that are saying a certain thing. The tales they were telling from house to house were loosing people from their anchor. And they were bashing into others and causing them to be damaged. Remember, Jesus, our anchor, said there is no more male or female. Slave or free, Jew or Gentile, Paul said that. But Jesus made it very plain by the way he constantly reached out to women. Who did he compliment? Who did he pick first to go spread the news? Oh, I even left out one of his missionaries a while ago. Who was the first missionary to the Gentiles? Not Paul, the Samaritan woman. He always reached out to the women, treated them with dignity, treated them with integrity and honor. These women were elevating women over men, and that's wrong. We have often made the corrective of elevating men over women, and that's wrong. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are equal in his eyes. Paul uses a word. I'll do this, and then I'll have to quit because the clock ticks on. Uh, Paul uses a word in 1 Timothy chapter 2 twice. 
If you have your Bibles open, we're not going to put it up because we're, this is a Greek word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, quiet. In, first, in verses 11 and 12, he uses it for women, but verse 2 is for everybody. When Peter uses it, he uses it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. It doesn't mean silent. Quiet doesn't mean silent. It means meek and gentle. And both men and women are to be meek and gentle. All of us have been called to this. And the goddess religions called you to live an out loud, outrageous life. God says, no. Meek and gentle. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, that same word is used to call believers to a life that is orderly and constructive. There's no need to translate that silent when it applies to women and not silent when it applies all the other times. There's no need for that. It merely means comply with the law, live in harmony with your neighbors. Sometimes we need to watch for those things that are keeping us from those simple, sweet gentle lives we're called to live. Sometimes it is yay for my team and I'm a man therefore it's got to be for my team or I'm a woman so it's got to be for mine or I'm, I'm white or I'm black or I'm Hispanic or I'm I, I, whatever. No. We have an anchor and it is not a political party and it is not a tradition. It is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life, we used to sing. Paul says, it is not a wealth of knowledge that's holding you back. It's a lack of knowledge masquerading as a wealth of knowledge. Tell a story to illustrate that. Then I've really got to quit. Because the classes start like 10 minutes ago. No, that, not yet. No, just kidding. Just kidding. The... Uh, the the special collection will be to buy Patrick a bigger clock. Um, my wife says, forget about Neanderthal man, that I am the original early man. I show up early, everywhere. Well, I was teaching at a, um, at, well, I'll just go ahead and say it, at Ohio State University, a special course that day, and I arrived early at the big lecture hall that I was going to be using, and sat in the back because it was already being used. Uh, by a class. And so I thought, well, I'll sit and listen. And it, it was obvious that this was a beginning philosophy class because the, the teacher was wearing a tweed jacket with leather patches. And there's a, <laughs> there's a code. Uh, and so he was going on about his philosophy and, and I was just being, I was being good. I was being good until he told the stupid Buddha story. Now, that's not the name of the story, but it's stupid. Um, and the story is that Buddha was once uh, meditating, and he fell asleep, and he dreamed he was a butterfly. And that's not the good part. Then, then he woke up, and he wondered, am I a man who dreamed he was a butterfly, or am I a butterfly dreaming I am a man? Oh. And everybody's going, ooh. 
and my hand went up. <laughs> he didn't know who I was. He assumed I was some midlife crisis returnee, so he called on me. That was a mistake. I stood up and I said, well, to dream, you have to form visuals, and to form a visual requires a minimum of 100,000 synapses, and if you want it to be a moving one that actually has motion in it and color, you have to have a minimum of a quarter of a million active synapses. Butterflies vary according to species, but no butterfly has more than 5,000 synapses. Therefore, they cannot dream. Therefore, you were a man dreaming you were a butterfly. And I sat down. <laughs> you, you, you cannot allow a lack of knowledge to masquerade as a wealth of knowledge. Sadly, he went on <laughs> to express how everything in life was an illusion. Everything was a figment of our imagination. My hand went up. I said, are you a figment of my imagination? And he said, yes. And I said, because he has to be consistent. I said, is the table in front of you a figment of my imagination? He said, yes. I said, so what would happen if I picked up the table and hit you with it? <laughs> Would it hurt? Now, see, that's a really deep philosophical question. You, if you're not a philosopher, you don't realize how deep that is. And, and he was stunned for a while, and he thought, and then he went up to write, and he just, oh, he went on a tear. Wish you could have been there. It's quite the thing to see. To, to prove that we can't know anything. My hand went up, and he can't not call on me because all the kids are, you know, like this. I said, how do you know? And he dismissed the class. I had them for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm not afraid. And I'm not going to allow the lack of knowledge to masquerade itself as a wealth of knowledge. What do we know? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what we know. Resurrected on the third day, that's what we know. That's what we'll preach. We're not going to preach silly rules made by men. When Pilate is questioned, he says, what is truth? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. There is one God, this is truth, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. That's what I believe. That's all I need to know. 